Guys, first of all, happy Hanukkah, Zos Hanukkah, this uh, last final day of Hanukkah. This uh, parsha, this Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parsha's Vayigash. So we continue with this uh, story that's unfolding, incredible uh, story, the great cliffhanger uh, that's been uh, unfolding these last few weeks. In the beginning of this week's parsha, we'll give again, uh, as we usually do, our brief overview, and then delve into the uh, psukim, the verses specifically that we're going to look at. So the beginning of the parsha, where we left at the end of last week's parsha, was that um, the final test, Yosef had accused Binyamin of, of stealing, and uh, Yehuda is about to speak. And that's how the parsha begins. Vayigashe love Yehuda, Yehuda approaches Yosef. We, we studied this last year, if you, um, if you read the parsha only a week apart, then you're not bothered by this question. But if you read the Torah in succession, then you're bothered. What do you mean, Vayigashe love Yehuda? At the end of last week's parsha, Yehuda is in the middle of speaking to Yosef. Vayomer Yehuda, manamar ladoni, manadaber, manazdadak. Yehuda is in the middle of talking to Yosef. If Yehuda is in the middle of talking to Yosef, then why does he need to say, why does it say, Vayigashe love Yehuda? Why is Yehuda approaching? What's the pshat? So we discussed last year, the idea is that Yehuda is in the middle of talking, but this is a moment of truth. This is the heightened drama. And Yehuda, as if says to Yosef, may I approach the bench? I need to confront you. I need to say something to you. And what does he say? He stands up for his brother Binyamin, and this is after all the test that Yosef had put in place all along. That you claim to have changed, you claim to, uh, to have grown, you have regrets. So Yosef says, you, got, you didn't care about me as a brother. So now I've taken another one of the brothers, not coincidentally the only other brother from the same mother, and let's see whether the brothers will treat this other brother from a different mother the way they treated Yosef, or they'll treat him better. And that's a test. And they pass the test. In fact, it's Yehuda who really passes it with flying colors when he approaches, when he approaches um, Yosef. Vayigashe love Yehuda. Yehuda approaches him. And he confronts him and he says, you can't do this. We can't go back without having Binyamin. There's no way. It's going to kill our father. You can't do this. And at that moment, Yosef couldn't take it anymore. He reveals his identity. He, uh, he tells the brothers who he is. I am Yosef, is my father still alive? Again, we discussed this at length last year. I am Yosef, is my father still alive? What do you mean, is my father? It's all of our fathers. You should have said, is our father. And again, we discussed last year the idea that Yosef was saying, my father, you claim to love your father, and that's why you need to bring him back? Where was your love for your father when you sold me, when you got rid of me? Where were you caring about our father when you did what you did to me? So you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're, about, you're, you're, you're totally duplicitous. You claim that you need Binyamin because you can't do that to your father. Where were you to worry about our father when you did what you did to me? So he asked specifically, Yosef, I'm Yosef. Avi is my father. We also said another shot that maybe Yosef wanted to know, Avi is my father still alive? Meaning, has my father given up on me? Does my father still long for me? Does he cry for me? Does he care about me? Is my father still alive? And so you have this whole uh, give and take between Yosef and the brothers. And uh, Yosef then says, go and tell dad I'm still alive, R- bring them down here. Paro joins in the welcome. Yosef gives out uh, gifts to everybody, and they go back and they tell Yaakov. Yaakov gets the news, that's what we're going to study today. Yaakov is stunned by the news. Um, then Yaakov gets the message, uh, and the wagons that are to accompany him to come down to Egypt. He goes down to Mitzrayim, but he makes a pit stop in Beersheva, because he's nervous about going. The parsha testifies there were 70 descendants. Yaakov arrives in Mitzrayim. They settle in Goshen, which is a suburb of Mitzrayim, not to be in the, in the heart of the Egyptian culture. Yaakov meets with Paro, 
very strange exchange. One would have expected the conversation between these incredible leaders. Yaakov, who is the quintessential spiritual leader of the world. Paro, who is the strongest emperor of the world. One would expect them to discuss the world economy, world peace, global warming, the Middle East. But uh, they don't. Instead, it's a very strange exchange. Paro says to Yaakov, Nu, how old are you? Yaakov says, I'm 130, but I've had a miserable life. Paro says, oh, shkayach, it was nice meeting you. And he goes on their way. Very strange conversation. And then Yosef in the famine, he sustains all of Egypt, despite the famine, because his prediction had come true and he had saved for it. And that's the end of the Parsha. Okay, so that's an overview of the Parsha itself. It brings us up to the Psukim, the verses that I want to study together with you. And where we left off last year was Perak Memhei, chapter 45, verse Chavav, verse 26. Chapter tw- uh, 45, verse 26. It's page 256 in the uh, Stone Chamesh. Page 256. So again, this is, we got up to this Pasuk last year. That's why we're starting from here. It seems like it's in the middle of nowhere. If you didn't hear last year's, uh, you could find the recording online. So what happens? The brothers ascend from Egypt and they come to Canaan. They approach, they arrive at their father. You can imagine the excitement. Their father, how long has Yosef been gone? 22 years. Yaakov has never recovered. He's never been the same. They're now coming back and they're bringing this unbelievable news. They said to him the following, Oh, Yosef, hi! Dad, we got great news! Yosef is still alive. Not only that, not only is he alive, but he is the ruler over all of Egypt. How does Yaakov react? He literally has a heart attack. He almost has a heart attack. He has an incident. He has a heart incident. His heart stops. He couldn't believe it. He simply didn't believe it. So what do they do? They keep talking. I would have called 911, but they keep talking. By the Bru'a love, it's called the very Yosef Asher Diber Alehem. They repeat everything that Yosef had said to them. They saw the wagons that Yosef had sent to carry him. And that, that revives Yaakov. And so Yaakov now turns to them. He's finally, he's no longer speechless. His heart is beating once again. He turns to his sons and he says, Rav owed Yosef Bini Chai. How great! It's amazing. My son is still alive. I'm going to go and I'm going to see him before I die. Okay, that's the exchange. And a number of uh, unusual things here in the exchange. So, back in Pasuk Havav, they told him, saying, Ode Yosef Chai. Yosef is still alive. What do you mean, Vayagidu? Why? There's a lot of different verbs that could describe communication. Vayomer, Vayidaber, Vayagid, Vayitzav. There's so many different verbs we have. Why specifically Vayagidu? Vayagidu is like Haggadah. It's like to tell a story. Why not Vayomer? Why not Vayidaber? Why Vayagidu? conversation between two. Not always. So look at the is to recount or to recall something which is difficult. It's not to relay something which is easy. It's not to tell someone something which is exclusively good news. But Vayagidu connotes koshi, difficulty. And this, after all, for the brothers, was difficult. 
כי סוף סוף תגלו רעס המצלו אשר עשו, ואשר גרמו להביאם כל הצער והבכי. Because in the end, saying that Yosef is still alive, Yaakov is going to say, what do you mean he's still alive? Didn't you guys bring me his coat that was covered in blood? Didn't you come and report that he had been murdered? That he had been killed by animals? You've got some explaining to do. What do you mean he's still alive? So it was Vayagidu, it was Koshi, it was difficult vis a vis how it related to them. The Archaim offers a second suggestion, which was the difficulty of this communication was that it would lead to, until now the Jewish people existed exclusively in the land of Israel. Eretz Canaan, that's where they live. That's where the family is growing, expanding, 70 and more living in Canaan. But with the report that Yosef is alive and he's asked us to go down to Egypt, what is beginning? The process of the servitude. They're going to go down to Egypt and a short time later it'll be a new para who doesn't remember them. And the slavery and the servitude will begin. A very dark and heinous period in Egypt. So that's introduced with the Vayagidu. Says the Orchaim, not necessarily that they understood what was coming, but as if the Torah is testifying that when they gave this information, it wasn't exclusively happy. It wasn't only joyous. Because yes, it was joyous that Yosef was alive. Yes, it was joyous there would be a reunion. But it was not joyous that the reunion would take place in Egypt, in exile, that they would be going down there and would begin launching a period of shibud, a period of servitude. And we find this momentarily, the Psukim, when Yaakov wakes up in Beersheba, he's nervous about going to Egypt, and God says to him, don't worry, it's all part of the master plan, you have nothing to be nervous about. So why is it Vayagidu lo lemor? The pastor could have just said Vayagidu lo. They told him, Od Yosef chai, Yosef's still alive. What do you mean Vayagidu lo? They told him lemor, saying, They understood that when you give somebody shocking news, even if it's good news, but shocking news, it can be dangerous. It can be a sakana. Because the person's reaction to it could literally be so shocking, could put their system in shock. So therefore they try to contemplate what's the best way to communicate this in a way that will not cause, God forbid, damage their father's health. So and then explains what they said to their father is we have something to tell you. Sit down. We have something we need to break to you. And only then when he was sitting and took a deep breath, only then lay more. So the Rechaim is explaining, the lay more is, um, it seems totally superfluous. But it's not superfluous because it is reflecting two stages. If you just walk up to someone and say, guess what, such and such, you're going to have a heart attack. You've got to walk up and say, even with good news, sit down, take a deep breath, I have something important to tell you. Then when they're somewhat prepared themselves, you can tell them. And that's what was happening. Dad, sit down, we have something to tell you. Lay more, here's what it is. Here's what it is. 
So they were prepared, he was prepared to hear the good news and it wouldn't have had that level of an impact. Problem is, it had that impact. Because Yaakov's heart stopped. So anyway, the Orachim goes on to give uh, other explanations. Other explanations. But we're not going to read it now. I encourage you to read it on your own. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see in a moment. We'll see in a moment. Said the Torah, his heart stopped. Look at Rashi. Rashi's understanding of Ayafagli Bo is not anatomical, it's not physiological. It's not describing a heart condition, which is consistent with the Orachayim, because that was taken care of by the two stages in which they told him. So what does it mean that his heart stopped? It means that his heart rejected the news. He wasn't capable of accepting the good news. He had been grieving for so long. He had been saddened for so long, he was almost incapable of accepting this good news. It's as if his heart rejected the good news. Until he received more evidence that indeed his son was alive, his heart rejected it. Others, however, explain not that his heart rejected it, but that this was a physiological reaction. Says the Ramban, first he quotes Rashi, Says the Ramban, Poga doesn't mean to reject information. Poga means nullification. Stop. He brings an example of two examples from Eicha. So the Ramban brings examples from Eicha and Chabakuk that that, that that verb describes not rejecting information, but stoppage. Complete stop. You know what it means? His heart skipped a beat. That's how the Ramban understands it. Rashi understands that his heart rejected the news. His heart was so broken... It wasn't able to accept this good news. It took a few moments to accept the good news. It required greater evidence. Maybe a coping mechanism. His heart was so broken, he couldn't take false hopes. So until he had more evidence that Yosef was alive, his heart rejected it. That's Rashi. Rabban says it has nothing to do with heart rejecting. It has to do with stoppage. His heart stops means his heart skipped a beat. Upaska nishima so. And he stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. He stopped breathing. He was as if he was dead. By the way, the Ramban was a doctor. It's well known that the Ramban was a doctor, but the Ramban too was a doctor. So the Ramban here references medical texts and says, as is well known in the medical texts, even when a person hears good news, if it comes suddenly, if it's startling, if it's shocking, a person's heart could stop, skip a beat. Older people, or those who are in a weakened state to begin with, 
cannot tolerate, can't absorb shocking news, even if it's joyous. Because the heart is widened, is expanded suddenly. When your heart is expanded, your blood, your body warms, warms up. It can't tolerate it. This rush, your blood pressure will go up, the heat, warmth comes over the body, and your body can't tolerate it. So this older man, Yaakov, fell like a dead person. He sat silently. He was speechless, says the Ramban, because he didn't believe him. How did they bring him back? It wasn't mouth to mouth. They didn't push on his chest. They brought him back by screaming into his ear. Here's the evidence. All the things that Yosef told us. And the wagons Yosef has sent us. And once he received all that evidence, in his subconscious, if he was unconscious at this point, then Vatachi Ruach Yaakov, he was revived. He was revived. So that's the Ramban. That's the Ramban. Now what did they tell him? What did they tell him? It's called Divrei Yosef. What does that mean, it's called Divrei Yosef? Says the Orchayim, one of the things they were going to tell him was, how it happened, right? That's why it was Vayagidulo, Lashen Koshi. It was a difficult thing that they were going to do. On the one hand, they were delivering good news. On the other hand, they were delivering difficult news. So, uh, so the Rechaim implies that they were going to tell their father. Look at the Ramban, Pasuk of Zion. And this answers your question, a very important Ramban. Yeroi li al derech apshat, shelohugad li Yaakov koyamav ki achiv machroz Yosef. He says, it appears to me based on the simple text that Yaakov was never informed that the brothers had sold Yosef. So what did he conclude then? What happened? What went down? Yaakov must have assumed that an animal injured him. He was incapacitated in the field. Someone came along and found him. He had not expired. He didn't die. He was just incapacitated. And they took him and sold him to Egypt. Why? Because the brothers The brothers never wanted to tell the father what they had done. Why didn't they want to tell their father what they had done? Fear. Legitimately, it was fear. They were worried the father would curse them. Why would they worry the father was going to curse them? Did they have a precedent for their father reacting harshly to their poor behavior? Sure. Because they had seen it before. What about Yosef? Didn't Yosef ever say to his father, Hey dad, I need you to know what happened that fateful day. Don't think that I just disappeared from you. I was, your other sons did a number on me. But he didn't tell him. Why? Because he didn't want to hurt his father. How does the Ramban know all of this? Because later, next week's parsha, after Yaakov dies... The brothers all approach Yosef. And you know what they say to Yosef? Say, Yosef, I don't know if you got the memo, but Dad sent the memo saying, don't do anything to us. Now if Yaakov had really known 
Yaakov would not have told the brothers to tell Yosef don't do anything to them. What would Yaakov have done? He would have told Yosef himself. So says the Ramban, from the fact that Yaakov never told Yosef himself, the brothers were lying. They were worried. They were fearful. So it reveals that the brothers lived in fear of their father, and they therefore never informed the father. Yosef also never foretold his father. This was a great secret. And in fact, the secret becomes a great confrontation in next week's Pasha. We could talk about it next week. But it becomes actually a big question. Did Yosef ever really fully forgive his brothers? Did he continue to carry hurt in his heart? And it's a little bit of a confrontation because when, when Yaakov dies, so the elephant's out of the room. Because while Yaakov's alive, Yosef doesn't want to hurt dad. The brothers don't want to hurt and they're afraid of dad. But when dad's out of the way, now is stage two. And the brothers are afraid that Yosef now has no reason to hold back. And they therefore come to Yosef and tell him, please. And Yosef says, yeah, it's, it's gone, it's, it's already finished. But did Yosef mean it? Was he sincere? It's all unclear. But the Ramban says from here, the Ramban says, he believes that Yaakov never knew. Yaakov never knew. Yaakov was led to believe or concluded on his own that animals injured Yosef. He lay in a field incapacitated. Someone came along and discovered him. And they sold him to, to uh, Egypt. But from the Orachayim, Ve'agidulo, Lashen Koshi, it sounds like the brothers were going to reveal to their father. So the text itself is ambiguous, leaves us wondering, we don't know whether Yaakov, it's one of the great mysteries, did Yaakov ever really find out what had happened, what had gone down between the brothers? Now what did Yosef, when it says Vaidabru, how did they revive their father? How did they revive Yaakov? By telling him all the things that Yosef had said. That's great. What were all the things that Yosef said? And the puzzle continues, and by showing him the wagons that Yosef sent. Now here's a question I have. Who sent the wagons? Yosef didn't send the wagons. Paro sent the wagons. Paro sent the wagons. First of all, the Pasuk says that Paro sent the wagons. And it even testifies afterwards that Paro sent the wagons. Look in, skip ahead a little bit. Barak Memvav Pasuk Yaakov finishes whatever he does in Beersheva. And B'nai Yisrael take their father and the children and the wives in the wagons. Asher Shalach. Paro. Paro. So why now is the text identifying Yosef as the one who sent the wagons? When in fact it was Paro who had sent the wagons. So what is it that they whispered in Yaakov's ear that revived him? And what does it have to do with showing him these wagons? And what are these wagons? Why are these wagons identified or associated with Yosef when indeed it was Paro who had sent them? So says Rashi, Es kol divrei Yosef, Simen masalam b'maha Yosef, Keshapirish mimenu. They showed Yaakov a sign of what Yosef was learning with studying with his father at the moment that he was separated from them. And namely, what was it? Parshas Egla Arufa. What's the Parsha of Egla Arufa? If a corpse is found and we don't know who the murderer is, so it says you measure to the closest city and the elders of the city come out and there's a ritual they perform and they make a declaration our hands are not responsible for the death. We didn't murder. We're the death, the blood is not on our hands. That's what he was learning with his father, the laws. If a corpse is found in a field, you measure to the closest city, the elders come out and offer this kind of confession, the blood is not on our hands. Shalach Yosef, Paro. 
says Rashi, that's why the Pasuk identifies it with Yosef, not Paro. Yosef was telling his father something only he could know. Because Yaakov's sitting there saying, I've been through enough pain. I don't need false hope. How do I know this is Yosef? How do I know it's Yosef? How do I know he's still alive? Yosef says, I'm going to send back a symbol, a message of something only I could know, namely the last thing we were studying. What was the last thing we were studying? Egla Arufa. And therefore he sends Agalos. And seemingly for Rashi, it's a play on words. Egla Arufa, you snap the neck of this calf. That's part of the process of the story of the corpse that's found. But Egla also can mean an Agala. An Agala is a wagon. So when Yaakov sees the wagons and he's told they're sent by Yosef, there'll be a word association. He won't think Agala wagon. He'll think Egla as in Arufa. Say, like, ah, oh, this was the last thing I was studying. It must in fact indeed be Yosef. And therefore, this was successful in reviving Yosef. That's the simple understanding of Rashi and of the text of what's going on. But look at the Kliyakar. Kliyakar only appears a few pages later. The Kliyakar of Ephraim Zaman Lunchitz Kliyakar says something different. Says the Kliyakar, Vayaras Agalos Asher Shalach Yosef. First he quotes Rashi. Pirish Rashi, Simon Masolahem, and so on. And then he says, Uperusho Rachuk Maod. Rachuk Maod. His explanation is very far off. Rachuk Maod. It's a little bit stopping short of saying wrong, <laughs> right? Because the Kliyakar, after all, doesn't want to say Rashi's wrong. But he says it's a little far off. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. It's far off. After all, Rashi says in a number of places, what's his mandate? What is his purpose in his commentary? Is He wants to only quote Medrash, which will elucidate the simple understanding of the text. So how is that the simple understanding of the text? It says that they told him things that Yosef said, he saw wagons, and he was revived. And now Rashi comes up with this highfalutin thing. They were learning Egla Rufa. Wagon is the same word as Egla Rufa. Why did I have to say wagons in the plural? It could have said one wagon. And that one wagon would have been enough to remind Yaakov of Egla Rufa. So Kliyakar is going to have a new interpretation of Rashi. The Rashi understood that Agalos means wagons. It doesn't mean Egla Rufa. What's Levia? Escort. Escorting. Escorting someone from your home. Escorting someone on the way. Escorting someone on the path. Yaakov understood that these were wagons Yosef that Yosef had sent. He was fulfilling the obligation of escorting. Yosef lama din alavia min Yaakov. And where did Yosef learn the rule that you have to escort someone? That a true host only fulfills their obligation as a host if they escort their guest. He learned it from Yaakov. Shekei namar Yaakov learned, Yosef learned from his experience with his father when his father sent him and escorted him could have just said he sent him but the notion of escorting 
Yaakov Where did Yaakov learn the concept of escorting a guest from? From Avram. Avram went with his guests in order to send them on their way. Perish Rashi, Rashi, how does he understand to send them? Is he kicking them out, giving them the boot, trying to get rid of them? No, Lishacham meant to escort them. Avram was the first to initiate this concept. Until Avram, you had a guest, you said to them, see, your way, see yourself out. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. Don't call me, I'll call you. But with Avram, he introduced the concept of Levia. Let me walk you out a few steps. That's why we do it. Every time I walk Rabbi Klein home, Rabbi Klein insists on walking me out. And then I get nervous for him to walk by himself, I walk him back in. And then he insists on walking me out. So every Friday, something's got to give, or we'll be caught in a vicious cycle for eternity. But that's the concept of Levia. You don't just, even whether you're walking someone out of your home, you don't just close the door behind them, you walk them a few steps out down the driveway. Or you're walking someone home, you take them, it, that, that's the concept. And where do we see a hint to this? It says, Vayita Eishel, Avram planted an Eishel, tree, Notrikon. And it stands for Eishel as Achila, Shtia, Levia. Now when Yaakov was learning this with Yosef, where did he teach him the concept? This is a beautiful kliyakar. Where did he teach him the concept of Levia that you have to escort someone? Where did he teach it to him? He taught it to him from Egla Rufa. Where is the concept of escorting someone in Egla Rufa? Remember again, Egla Rufa, the law is, if you discover a corpse lying in a field, you measure to the closest city, and the elders come out and say, his blood is not on our hands. Where is the concept? What are the elders saying? When they arrive at this corpse, and they see the person, and they say, we've never seen this guy before. His blood is not on our hands. What are they essentially saying, says the Kliyakar? It's beautiful. What they're saying is, we don't recognize him. Had we recognized him and had he been a guest in our community, we would have walked him out. He never would have found himself alone in the field, exposed to the elements, capable of being murdered. If we had recognized him, had he been our guest, we would have escorted him. So Yaakov used the laws of Egla Arufa as a platform to teach Yosef the concept of escorting a guest. When he sent his brothers out from Egypt and said, Quick, go get dad, he mistama, he obviously taught them some halacha. He escorted them out with a teaching. And he said, When they said, We're going to get dad, he didn't just, they left the palace, he walked them out. And he said, You know why I'm walking you out? Brothers, because I just learned from Dad 22 years ago, the last thing we were studying actually was this concept of Egla Rufa and how the elders were innocent because they didn't recognize the face because if they had, they would have walked him out. And you see from there, Dad told me he learned this from his grandfather from Avraham and I'm escorting you, I'm walking you out because that's something that we Jews do, we walk our guests out. Now 
It's a beautiful Kliyakar. So he says, what Rashi means is, what do you mean all the things that, that um, by Dabru Elav they told? Right, what's the Pasuk? By Dabru Elav it's called Divrei Yosef. What was it that they told him? Everything that Yosef had said. What they told him is how Yosef escorted us out and said that the last thing he was learning with you was Egla Arufa and the laws of escorting and therefore he had to escort us out. And by Arasa Agalos, they saw the Agalos which also is testimony to this Egla Arufa. So with this the Kliyakar is explaining. What bothered the Kliyakar? It's come on, cute play on words. Egla Arufa, Agalos. Come on. Really? Yaakov just remembered this was the last thing he was learning with Yosef? Come on. So Kliyakar explains, no, it's not a coincidence. It was this process of Levi escorting, which is, they, they told him explicitly. They said, Dad, Abba, Tati, Yosef walked us out on our way out, and let me tell you what he told us was the last thing he was learning with you, which was Egla Rufa, and that's what Rashi was hinting to. According to the Kliyakar, Rashi never meant a play on words with Egla Rufa and Agalos. Rashi was just uh, what the brothers were telling their father was this was the last thing you were learning Egla Rufa which is the makra the source of Levia which is what he did to us on our way out okay continuing back to Pasuk Chavches verse 28 Vayama Yisrael so now how finally he's been revived. Vatachiruach Yaakov, he's been revived. He's alive again. He's alive again. By the way, says Rashi, how does he know? Rashi doesn't understand he's alive again. The, um, the Rashpam understands it as he was revived. Kiloha Aminlahem, the Rashpam, uh, sorry, the Sforno writes, Lefichach Vatachiruach Yaakov, once he received enough evidence, he was revived, he believed them. Rashi doesn't understand it, because again, remember for Rashi, it's not physiological. For Rashi, what was Vayafagli Bo? For Rashi, Vayafagli Bo meant, not that his heart stopped, but that his heart rejected the information. So for Rashi, because it was never physiological, once he received enough evidence that Yosef was alive, then it doesn't mean, Vatachi, that he became alive again. What does it mean? Says Rashi, Sharsa alav shechina shapir shamimena. From when Yaakov thought Yosef was gone, he didn't have nevuah. Prophecy stopped. Because prophecy can only be received in a position of joy, not from a position of sadness. And with Yaakov so terribly sad and grieving, he couldn't receive prophecy. Now, when he felt prophecy come again, when he felt the divine providence countenance, when he felt God's presence again, prophecy returned, he knew it was true. He was, so ruach means here, not ruach, his spirit returned, he became revived. But Rashi understands ruach means shechina. Hashem's spirit returned, because now Yaakov was in a position of joy again. That's how, that's how uh, Rashi understands it. The Svorna says, no, Nirpa mina ilof hakodem badragas ha-simcha imadayga. He was literally, he, he caught his breath. Before he had lost his breath, his heart stopped, he now caught his breath. So Pasir Chavches, he's finally ready to respond to this incredible news. But the Torah doesn't tell us Vayomer Yaakov. The Torah tells us Vayomer Yisrael. Why is his name? Why Yisrael here, not Yaakov? So the Sforno says, Vayomer Aleim Yisrael. I'm sorry. No, that's later. That's not this. Uh, Sforno doesn't say anything here. Sforno is talking about Pazig Beis. 
Yeah, it does, but there's significance. And there's always significance when it changes, why it changes. So why is it Vayomer Yisrael? Let's leave it for a moment. He says, Rav, unbelievable news, how great. Od Yosef Benichai. My son Yosef is still alive. Now what does Rav mean? What is Rav describing? So look at Rashi, Rav. Rav li, simcha v'chedva, hoa v'od Yosef benichai. Rav means, I, I, have, I have unbridled joy, unending happiness, because my, my son Yosef is still alive. And the Ibn Ezra says similarly, Rav od Yosef, Rav li, zos simcha. It's great for me, this joy, this news that Yosef is still alive. But the Rashbam understands differently. Look at the Rashbam. Dai befugas libi shiloha amanti. Elavadai od Yosef benichai. Pashtas acherim shel armumios omrim vihinam hevel. He says, I accept it. It's great news that I'm, I've been revived. Others would say that this is not true, but, it's, but it is true. Vani hatzar shamati rav od Yosef benichai. Atem omrim od Yosef chai vihihum moshel. Rav li bameshehu adayin chai afilu eina moshel. So the, the Rashbam understands differently than his grandfather Rashi. Rav, this is how he understands it. Rav, od Yosef benichai. It's good enough for me that my son Yosef is still alive. That he's Moshe, Bechalaretz Mitzrayim, that's icing on the cake. I don't even care. It's incredible. But that he's still alive is more than I could ask for. Right? It describes the Pasuk beautifully. They tell their father... That Od Yosef, Chai Yosef is alive, and he's the viceroy of all of Egypt. By the way, it's interesting to say, I imagine Paro would take exception to that. They didn't, they didn't accurately say what he is. He's number two in all of Egypt. They say he's Moshe, he's number one. Okay. But Yaakov, according to the Rashbam, because it does read very awkwardly the Pasuk, Vayomer Yisrael, Rav. Od Yosef Benichai. Rav, Rav means Rav means great, but usually it means great in number, right? Great in quantity. I mean, Rav is great news. So here, the Rashbam understands Rav means it's great enough that Od Yosef Benichai, the news that my son is still alive, that's good enough, without needing to be told in addition to that that he's the leader of Ram Mitzrayim. That's even greater news on top of that. Okay. So what does he say? Now look at the Sforno. The Sforno says, note what he says. I will go and I will see him before I die. Not that I wanted to live there. The Sforno is Medayek. The Sforno, in, in Yaakov's words, sees already an apprehension. Yaakov is not interested in going to Egypt. And that's what the next parak, these next psukim are going to unfold. Yaakov's not interested in going to Egypt. He doesn't want to go to Egypt. So he says, I'll go to see him, but he doesn't mention I'll go to stay, to remain, to live there. Okay. Parak Memvav. I have to leave in a minute, but let's start it. We have to, a little shorter today. I apologize. So Yisrael goes, but he makes a pit stop. I would have thought he'd make a beeline to Egypt. 22 years he hasn't seen his favorite son. I would imagine he would want to hug that kid more than anything in the world. But he makes a little pit stop where? Beersheba. Beersheba. Where is Beersheba? Why, why Beersheba? 
Now, Be'er Sheva is in the south. It is on the way to Egypt. But why make a pit stop there? Because Yitzchak, his father... Right. It's a great question. Why Be'er Sheva, not Hebron? If anything, stop in Hebron. Daven at the grave of your, of your father and your grandfather. So what? But either way, it doesn't sound like he stopped in Beersheba because it was on the way. It sounds like he stopped there because he wanted to stop there. What is the significance of Beersheba? So Beersheba actually has great significance. There is a very, very, very long Ramban here where he talks about it. Beersheba is a place, if you remember, that um, Avram planted trees. Why did he plant those trees? What did he anticipate would be done with the wood? the Mishkan would be built with the wood of those trees which were planted. Yaakov is going to take that wood now on his way down to Egypt because that wood will be safeguarded and kept. It's going to be the wood that they build the Mishkan with in the Midbar. But it's more than that. It's more than just that that's where those trees were planted in Beersheba. Beersheba is where a korban was offered. It's where his father had established a Mizbeach, an altar of prayer. And at this point, Yaakov is over whelmed with a feeling of gratitude and feels the need to thank Hashem. And Yitzchak had created a precedent of thanking Hashem specifically in that place. So it says, He offered sacrifices to the God of his father of Yitzchak. Now why doesn't it just say to the God of Yitzchak or to the God of his father? Don't I know that his father is Yitzchak? Says Rashi, why didn't I identify Elokei Avraham also? Why is it identified Elokei Yitzchak? Rashi is a very important teaching. You see, a person is obligated in honoring their father more than in honoring their grandfather. Because Yaakov identifies this place with his father, Yitzchak, not with his grandfather, Avraham. This Medrash. Now what do you learn from this Medrash? Is there an obligation? We know there's an obligation of Kibar Ava'im. We're obligated in honoring our father and mother. Are we obligated in honoring grandparents as well? Is there a mitzvah of honoring grandparents? Yes. So Rav Usher Weiss in his Minchas Usher has a long essay on this. And he quotes the Maharik. The Maharik says there is no, he proves from here that there is this medrash that Rashi quotes that there is no halacha that you have to honor a grandparent. There's three opinions. The Maharik's opinion is that there's no mitzvah of kibbutz ve'aim for a grandparent. You have to honor all people. You have to honor all elderly people. But the, uh, the obligation, the detailed obligation you have vis-a-vis a parent does not apply to a grandparent. That's the Maharik's opinion. Others say, B'nei vanim harehim kevanim. Grandchildren are like children. So if grandchildren are like children from the grandparents' perspective, then grandparents are like parents from the child's perspective. And there is a full mitzvah of kibbutz ava'im of a grandfather. And there's a third opinion. The third opinion says there's no mitzvah of honoring a grandparent per se, but there's a mitzvah of honoring a grandparent because that's how you honor your parent. Now what's a nafkamina? One practical difference between these opinions is what if a parent, God forbid, dies in the lifetime of the grandparent? If the obligation to honor the grandparent is because they're, they're ob- you're obligated, they're deserving, then you remain obligated. If the whole reason you had to honor them was because it was a way of honoring your parent and your parent doesn't, is no longer alive, then you're no longer obligated. What happens if there's a conflict between honoring your grandfather and your father? Both ask you to get a glass of water at the same time. Who do you get the glass of wine, for, the glass of water for first? So I'll tell you this: when it comes to honoring, let's say a woman, 
Um, serves the food. No, because you have this. The Gemara has this. What if you? What if? What if your mother and father both ask for a glass of water at the same time? Who do you get first? The Gemara says you get the father. Why do you get the father? Because both you and your mother are obligated in honor towards the father. So therefore, you get for the father first. So do you say the same thing here? Do you get the grandfather first because both you and your father are obligated in honoring your grandfather? No, your father first. So that's what Rav Asher Weiss says in a long essay where he's discussing this topic, a very interesting topic. Are you obligated in honoring your grandfather? Another very important nafkamina that will come out, and this does come out, you have a case where a parent is estranged from the grandparent. Should the child, the grandchild, have a relationship with the grandparent? The parent says, I don't want you talking to your grandfather or grandmother. What they did to me, I'm estranged, I don't talk to them, I don't want you talking to them. Where does the mitzvah of kavod come from? Do you honor the grandparent above and beyond the, the parent? Or does the mitzvah of the parent come first and therefore you don't have a relationship with the grandparent? Big discussions in halacha all stem from this Rashi, from this Medrash. We have to, I have to end here. Wait, 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 wait,